Bienvenue dans l'Alcove. Ce soir, on reçoit Sugar Sammy. Welcome to the Alcove. Tonight, our guest is Sugar Sammy. So a big welcome to everyone here tonight. Bienvenue à tous. Uh, this evening, we have the immense pleasure of closing out our third season, like Elsa mentioned, with Samir Kular, a.k.a. Sugar Sammy. Did I say that right? That's right. Vous connaissez Sugar Sammy comme l'humoriste qui a fait rire le Québec avec ses spectacles « You're gonna rire » et « En français, s'il vous plaît » ou encore comme comédien dans la série « Ces gars-là » avec Simon-Olivier Fecteau. Plus récemment, Sugar Sammy a exporté son talent en Europe où il fait mourir de rire les Français. Un des humoristes les plus importants sur la scène internationale, Sammy a donné plus de 1600 spectacles dans 31 pays en anglais, en français, en hindi et en punjabi. Né à Montréal de parents immigrants indiens, il a grandi dans le quartier multiculturel de Côte-des-Neiges, entouré d'amis venant de partout et d'ailleurs. Sugar Sammy is passionate about Montreal and the Canadians. There's no denying it, he not only considers Montreal home, <laughs> but because he's now constantly traveling the world, he loves to come back. He's even proud to say that he pays his taxes in Quebec and does not miss an opportunity to mention that. Right. <laughs> the first comedian ever to have performed a bilingual show here in Quebec, Sugar Sammy, is what we can call a risk taker, a visionary. Tonight we'll try to do the same thing that we've done with all of our guests in the past, discover a different side of Sugar Sammy, the man behind the laughs. That said, we still hope you'll make us hate. All right. We're thrilled to have taken, that you've taken the time to hang out with us tonight. So welcome to Alco. Bienvenue à Alco. Thank you guys. Thanks for the invitation. So we always like to start with a speed round to make sure that everybody, don't look at my questions. Sure, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that everybody feels really comfortable. All right. Uh, and we get to know you a little bit more quickly. Sure. Answer with the first thing that comes to mind. What was your first memory of making somebody laugh? Uh, 12 years old, I was playing baseball, and uh, it was a bunch of uh, boys, a couple of girls playing, and then there was on the sideline, there was like four or five girls who were a little bit older than I was, and I was at third base waiting to come home, and all these girls were there, and I was making them laugh the whole time, and I was throwing jokes out there, and they were like, wow, we really like this guy, not for any skill set that I had as a baseball player, <laughs> but just because I was making them laugh, and that really made me go, wow, I could really do some damage with this skill that I have now. <laughs> so at 12 years old, I realized that uh, women liked uh, guys who could make them laugh. So that, that, that's the first memory that I have of making somebody laugh. Amazing. Uh, what's a movie that you can quote from start to finish? Oh, shit. Um, I'd probably say The Empire Strikes Back. It's probably, I'm a big Star Wars freak. Like, I know a lot about Star Wars. They, they, every time they have, like, a quiz about Star Wars, like, I always end up in the finals. Yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle that I have a girlfriend that I'm able to keep <laughs> at this point with the amount of uh, Star Wars knowledge that I have. So The Empire Strikes Back, pretty much you can watch over and over. Eddie Murphy, Delirious, is another... Big one, I think a lot of comedians in my generation yeah. became comedians because they watched Eddie Murphy. You know, I think it was the only DVD, well, it wasn't DVD back in the day, it was VHS. Yeah? Does everybody feel as old as I do? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it was VHS cassette that we'd rent, and it was uh, the only one, it was the most popular one, and I think a lot of comedians became uh, comedians today. A lot of guys in my generation became comedians because of Eddie Murphy. So that I could quote pretty much start to finish as well. Best Indian food on Jean Talon. Ooh, best Indian food on Jean Talon. Jeez, I don't even know. I haven't been on Jean. You know what? The best Indian food that I know is my uh, my mom's food. So, nothing beats that. Yeah. If you were lost in the woods, how long do you think you'd survive? 
uh, probably four minutes. Okay. <laughs> I have no outdoor That's skills so whatsoever. People are always like, you know, my friends are always like, oh, let's go camping. I'm like, two words, white people. Like, <laughs> Indian people do not go camping. <laughs> I don't think I could tough it. People were like, well, what about roughing it? I'm like, roughing it for me is like three and a half stars. Like, that's, that's roughing it. Anything below four stars for me is tough. So I would survive four minutes, and probably three minutes of that would be begging. Is there a, <laughs> is there a city where you would not perform? A city where I would not perform? No. I would, I would love to perform everywhere I can. I get excited about new places. I always get excited about trying to win a new crowd over. For me, it's always uh, that curiosity, the, uh, the fact that I get to learn something new, get to discover something new. I always have that appetite to, uh, to, uh, to you know, discover something new and to learn from it. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, I've been able to do this for so long and, and get through it is because uh, I always had that appetite to, to, to get to know someone, get to know people, and be interested in other people, which is not really a, um, <laughs> a, uh, a trait that a lot of people have today anymore, you know, especially with social media and all that stuff taking over. So you, you really genuinely have to be interested. And for me, getting a new city on my list, yeah. you know, no matter where it is, is definitely a very exciting part of this, uh, this job. Something that you do that really annoys your girlfriend? Uh, Something, I don't know if she's here, we'll, we'll ask her. Everything, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I don't know, what is it? What, what do I do that annoys my girlfriend? She doesn't want to answer. <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't know. I think we, we get along pretty well, no? <laughs> We've been living together for like five years. What, what we, is we it? Can, we can come back. What is it? No, we can show, show. Maybe I'll know now if she could tell us the truth. No, it's really tough because you don't annoy me. Oh. And this is why this works. <laughs> <laughs> a subject that even for you is too offensive. A subject for me that's too offensive. I don't think that I've ever been really offended by anything. I think for me as a comedian, especially, like, You'll go anywhere. I'll go anywhere, and I think with a lot of comedians, when we get together and no one's around, like I was with four of my comedian friends, and we were just kind of brainstorming yeah. a couple things. And the longer we can go together, when there's like, the better for us, you know. And I think for us, it's always pushing that muscle to go further and further. I feel like if there was just a room full of comedians uh, who, you know, tell each other the wrongest jokes, we could get, a, we'll probably get away with a lot more than, than uh, to a regular paying audience, you know? And we love that, I think, whenever we get together. There should be a podcast like that where we all get smashed <laughs> and tell, tell the wrongest things, but, like, only other comedians can listen to it. You're onto something. Yeah, I'm onto something. I don't know if that would... Yeah, I try to, like, because I try to add that, like, 4D experience to the horror. <laughs> I'm like, I know it's scary on screen, but what if we added a little something to it? Yeah, we, we, we actually went to see a movie uh, a couple of years ago where we were, the, we were the only ones in the cinema. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a horror movie, and before it started, I, I, keep, I keep saying to her, did you see that? Did you see that over there? And she's like, stop doing that. But... 
I have fun when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how long does it take you to get ready in the morning? How long does it take? Uh, again, another question for my girl. I'm glad you're here. So how long does it take? <laughs> 30 minutes? Yeah, it's easy. 30. But be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, a bonus, bonus round. Um, what sport would be the funniest if you had to add alcohol to it as a mandatory thing? A sport with yep. alcohol? Yep. Oh, man. Hockey, for sure. Okay. Could you imagine? I mean, the Habs are already horrible sober. But like, <laughs> like last year, we were like everybody went, no, we can't say that. <laughs> But imagine smashed, imagine drunk, the amount of fighting you'd get done. Drunky. Yeah, drunk hockey. Any other uh, suggestions? <laughs> She's actually imagining. <laughs> what about? Cricket would be fun too. Just, is cricket ever fun? Cricket, yeah, cricket that goes for five days, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Um, do you know the amount of shows that you've done total? Oof. I haven't kept count. I haven't kept count, but it's over 1,600 for sure, because it's what it says in the bio. But that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know exactly how many it is. Um, for which show were you the most nervous? Um, I think for me, the bilingual show, the first, the la première médiatique for the bilingual show was one of those things where I was really nervous about, because for months I remember announcing the bilingual show. Uh, we'd announced it in October 2011, and the premiere was in February 2012. And I remember as soon as we announced it, the amount of nerves that I, we had a press conference at the Bell Center, and it'd never been done before. So there was no real template for it. There was no blueprint. Nobody had done it, so it was something completely new. In theory, I felt like it worked. I tried it in comedy clubs. It worked, but it worked in front of an Anglophone Montreal audience. But here was something we were announcing, and and commercializing to uh, the masses here in Quebec. So I thought to myself, geez, will everybody get this show? Will this work? Uh, and as soon as we announced it, I remember I had a hard time sleeping for a couple months. And, um, <laughs> and I remember somebody telling me, so how's it coming along? I was like, I don't know. I got to start writing it. And that was like, <laughs> I, that was a joke. Was a joke. <laughs> and they were actually involved in the show. They were like, what? I was like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but I had like, I'd say 55 to 60% of it written, and then, um, and then I was really nervous about that one uh, connecting or not, because no one had ever performed something like that in front of, uh, you know. What was your audience? How many my, people? my audience was, the first, the premiere? The premiere was 1,400 people at the Olympia. But, you know, all of the Quebec media was there. They were curious. It was something that was talked about for months, and people were like, as soon as it was announced, you had, um, people who are excited about it on one side and outraged on the other. You know, where it's like, uh, it's, it's a menace à la langue française, puis à la culture québécoise, et puis, uh, you know, uh, c'est un enjeu pour l'avenir du Québec. Like, all this was going on that I didn't expect, really, and then all the other people were really excited. So I had a lot, les attentes étaient grandes. We had a lot, I had a lot on my shoulders. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was, uh, I was happy when, when, it, when it was done because it was a, a big success and the reviews were great. Mm -hmm. But that was the most nervous I was before that show. And then uh, one of the happiest moments of my life when it was uh, done and then, you know, everybody jumped on board. 
Uh, and the Montreal audience actually uh, embraced it, you know. Yeah. So in a past life, you were a club promoter. Mm -hmm. And uh, the name Sugar Sammy comes from the fact that you used to let all the girls in for free at yeah. your parties. Right. Do you uh, regret sticking to that name? Uh, <laughs> do I regret sticking to that name? <laughs> well, no, because now everybody knows me and it, for, for that name. And, you know, back in the day, yeah, I mean, there was a moment where I'm like, I'm not going to be able to live this name down. But now I look back and I'm like, there are a lot of cool people who had that, that name. You know, there's Sugar Ray Leonard, a mm -hmm. uh, couple good boxers, Sugar Ray Robinson. So I'm in good company, just not as in good shape, but, <laughs> but it worked out pretty well. And, um, and uh, no, I, I'm, I'm happy. It's like, uh, no, I think it works. It works, it's catchy. I think Samir Kular travels less well. <laughs> I've been stopped at the airport a lot more with that name, you know? Yes. Random search, right? Not so random. It's like it's been the last, you know, three out of four times. What happened? Um, okay, so that's it for the, the speed round. Okay. We'll get to the real stuff now. All right. Uh, so I want to talk a bit about your family. Um, you know, if we start at the beginning, your family played a huge role in, in your life. Uh, they fostered an environment where comedy was really kind of central to your everyday life. There was a lot of goofing around at home. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, you and probably a lot of other comics watched Delirious. You were eight and you mm -hmm. watched it with your family. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that moment where you decided, you know what, this is what I actually want to do. Uh, and I think the real jackpot is that you had immigrant parents, but that were into this idea of you becoming a stand-up comic. There wasn't a lot of pushback. So what role has your, your family played in, in your career? I mean, they're definitely my biggest fans, you know? And I talk about this all the time. You, you, you're not coming to my parents' house without watching a Sugar Sammy video. <laughs> like, you are going to sit down and watch a video no matter what. And I always tell this joke. I'm like, you know, people are like, sir, I got to go. I'm just here to fix the pipes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you got to sit down and watch it. Uh, and my dad will, like, anytime something comes out in the paper, because my parents live in a very Anglophone area, and, you know, the Anglophones all, like, of a certain generation, all get the Gazette, Montreal Gazette. So my parents know anytime I'm in the Gazette, the neighborhood has read about it. So he'll, he'll, he'll gladly walk out on the street that day and be like, did you guys see the Gazette? My son's in the Gazette. How's... How's your kid doing? <laughs> so, so, I mean, there's nothing more embarrassing, but at the same time, there's nothing more heartwarming than your parents being proud. You know, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of us, I mean, one of our motivations of, you know, for becoming success, successful and doing what we do is having your parents be proud of you, you know? And I think, uh, I think a lot of us uh, identify with that. And for me, I think, even though my, my parents do it in sometimes an embarrassing way, it's always great to know that. I've had that support, and they've never pushed back on me wanting to be a comedian because I also never really sat down and talked about it. I never really said, okay, mom, dad, I'm gonna become a comedian. I think that's the biggest mistake you can make. You gotta kind of have that slow transition where you slowly do it while you're in school and do other things, and that's what I was doing. And one day I was in the papers, and I was like, oh, by the way, this is happening now. <laughs> and it's too late by yeah. then, you know, so. Uh, you mentioned something to me when we first met, which I thought was so interesting. You said, I'm not the funniest one out of my friends, and I'm not the funniest one in my family. Mm -hmm. I'm just the only one that figured out how to make this a job. Right. So how do you make this a job? Well, you got to treat it like any other... Um, you know, a lot of comedians, I tell comedians, a lot, of, a lot of them will say, well, how does it work? I said, well, listen, the second you decide to do this, there's two ways you could do it. You could see it as a job. You could see yourself as an employee. 
someone's going to wait by the phone for work, or you could see yourself as a small business owner. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively, I think, the most successful comedians are the ones who treat this like a small business and who want to grow it into a big business. And I think that's the ones you start seeing, like, more and more. Those are the guys who are making it. Those are the, the, the artists that make it. If you look, whether it's comedy, whether it's music, it's people who take, take it seriously and say to themselves, no one's going to do it for me. You know, I've got to plan my career, I've got to plan my path, and I've got to be involved in every aspect, you know, and I've got to grow it. And you're only as strong as your team, you know, and so for me, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by an amazing team as well who've helped me grow and get to this level. I think what, you know, people don't realize is that it took about 10 years for you to actually be able to do this full time and yeah. not even be, like, successful necessarily financially, you know, successful at that point. Yeah. You now have been doing this for how long? 20 plus years? 22 years. Yeah, 22 years. And people have only seen, you know, the successful parts. But I remember there was a point where I had to say to myself, okay, I'm not doing anything else anymore. I'm not going to promote clubs anymore. This is it. If I'm going to think of this as a small business, every successful small business owner can't have an extra job on the side. You've got to focus on this. So I was like, okay, I've got to really focus on this and do this and, and risk it all and go all in. And I remember at one point, it was so difficult. I had a couple of years where uh, I was really pushing hard to get to a certain level. And at one point, I did get to a level, but I, was, I wasn't doing well financially yet. But I was successful in terms of everybody knew me. But I wasn't, but I, I wasn't successful in terms of like, uh, the finances, the financial part of it. And I was headlining in Montreal. And I was heading to one of my shows, and I was taking the bus. I was taking the 166, if anyone knows the 166. 166, Codinage, yeah, right? It goes all the way from uh, Hampstead to through Snowden and Codinage. And the comedy club was at the Terminus, right? So I took the 166 all the way, and then at one point, these, uh, this couple walks on from Snowden Metro. They walk onto the bus, and they're like, hey, Sugar Sammy. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, where are you guys going? They're like, we're going to see your show. <laughs> so, so I rode to my show with my fans on the bus, and I'm like, oh, this is classic. Uh, but I never forgot that moment. I thought to myself, yeah, this is what it's all about. You've got you to push hard. And then uh, eventually, I mean, I took that success, and I, and I, you know, and I, I made sure that I was going to turn it into something and not just sit on it. You know? mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about your creative process. You know, I think the, the sign of a really good comedian is somebody that makes it look very easy, that makes it look effortless, but you and I both know that doesn't, that's really actually not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it's a really delicate balance of art and science. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talked about uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule of, you know, if you do something for 10,000 hours, then you can actually become really good at it if you have that innate talent. Uh, what's your process of, of preparing for a show? Well, there's so much, because there's the writing part, which is probably the toughest part. And rewriting. And, and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So whenever I get an idea, my girlfriend will, will tell you about this, I'll write it down, and then I'll talk about it until I develop it into something, uh, and, it, and, it, and it becomes something. And then I, t I take it on stage, and I go to all these open mics, and I test out my material in front of an audience. And it's all about not being afraid to fail. And that's the tough part, is you got to go up there and you got to do hours and hours and hours of this before it looks natural and before it becomes something. And I think that's, that's the thing about comedians. You could, tell, uh, you could tell the difference between a new comedian and a veteran comedian within five seconds of them getting on stage. You could tell right away. And it all comes with the comfort level, knowing what you're going to do, knowing how prepared you are. You've got to be so prepared 
that it almost looks like you're just having a conversation with your audience. And that level of confidence comes from being over-prepared. Like, you've got to be so prepared. I mean, I improvise because I already know I have four or five backup plans in case this doesn't go well. You know, I have tools in my pocket. If this conversation is not going to go well with an audience member, I've prepared in case of any eventuality that, mm -hmm. you know, it will go well at some point. So uh, for me, it took me 22 years to get to, the, to this point. I look back at the work I've done when I was like 19, 20, and I cringe. I can't even watch some of that stuff, you know? Like even like, I think when you, when you watch stuff from like two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, I see the progress happening so quickly. And that's a good sign, is when you see that the intervals from where you're like, you, you've seen yourself progress get smaller and smaller. It feels like you've worked harder and harder and you're, you're growing as an artist and you're growing in terms of your skill set and uh, the amount that you're putting in. So that's very important. People don't see that part and it's not the audience's job to, to see that. I hate it when I go to a show and I'm with someone and they're like, oh, I really see the work that they put in. <laughs> ah, je vois la mise en scène. I'm like, well, then he didn't do his job. Uh, the best movies, the best shows are the ones when you forget you're at a show, you forget you're watching a movie, right? You're freaking out so much. You know, this movie's so great, plus you got your boyfriend, like, blowing air in your ear. <laughs> so it freaks you out. No, it's, it's, those are the best, I think, moments is when you forget that you're actually watching something that's fiction, that's not real. And I think for me, the best stand-up is when you forget that you're at a show, that you've actually, you're actually, it feels like you're listening to a friend and they're making you laugh. I think that comes with a lot of preparation. Who do you think does it well other than yourself? Oh, who does it well? I and mean, don't be don't be political, like or the name maybe like a name that we might not all know that somebody that we should discover. I love guys like uh, Bill Burr. He's one of my favorites. Um, uh, I went to see Kevin Hart recently at the Bell Center, and I did, I went with no expectations. I went to see Kevin Hart, and Kevin Hart blew me away. Oh, yeah. And I could see the level that this guy puts in. And when you look at Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart's business, I mean, this guy's on top of everything. Not only what he does on stage, but everything, the 360 around it, you know? The business side, the marketing, the PR, uh, developing his own projects. Like, he's on top of it. He wants to grow, and he wants to be in charge of his career. You could tell. And when you see him on stage, it's not, you know, it's not a lackluster performance. He wants to make sure his audience leaves feeling like they've gotten something special. And for me, I think that's really key, is to make sure that my audience you know, even if I grow it at, at a certain pace, I want to make sure that my audience trusts me to know that every time they come and see a show, that it's going to be great. You know, it's, these days it takes a lot for people to leave their houses. You've got Netflix, you've got all the comforts that you're in your home. To leave your house, to drive in this city, to go anywhere and to park, <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot. Two tickets, your babysitter, your, your dinner, like all of that, you're putting almost, you're putting all of your trust into this performer saying, I trust you. This is going to be a great night. This is going to be worth my time. So you've got to put that, you've got to make sure you build that trust with your audience. If you let them down, they're not going to give you a second chance. Mm -hmm. Not today. So I think that's very important. Um, there's a certain sense of you that is very traditional. You know, you do come from a traditional background. You moved out of your parents' home when you were 38 years old. <laughs> 36. Uh-huh. No, you didn't. 38. <laughs> uh, but when you take a closer look at your career, <laughs> nice try. Uh, you made some not so, you know, traditional choices. I think that your path has been really interesting. Did you, 
know as you were making some of those decisions, this is what's gonna really differentiate me from, let's say, my competitors or my other, uh, other stand-up comics? Um, I mean, yes and no. A lot of my choices have come from what inspired me. So a lot of it was from the passion, you know? Mm -hmm. um, some of the choices that I made come from the heart, but some of it are also, you know, business choices. So yeah, it's a mix of both. I'm not just gonna make choices based on, okay, well, the money's over here, so I should go there, but I'm gonna be bored for the next five years. Yeah. I have to, you have to love what you're doing, especially uh, doing stand-up. I mean, I've been in this business 22 years, and I didn't make a profit for the first 12 years, at least, doing this. So you have to love it in a way where you're like, no matter what happens, I'm gonna do this. And even if I'm dirt poor at the end of it, you know, I love the process, I love writing, and I love getting up on stage, and that's what matters the most. So, so a lot of it came from passion, and I think that came through. Had it just been business decisions, I would have probably uh, bailed out a long time ago. You know? So, the, you know, the hard work is there. You clearly put a lot of time and energy into your shows, and you love what you do. Do you think you have anything other than that that kind of stands out as your competitive advantage? Um, other than that, that stands out as hard work, I think, I mean, You've got to have some sort of like talent. You've got to have, you know, you can't just be work. You have to have some sort of talent. You got to put in the work. You got to put in also. Uh, you got to have a great team. I mean, for me, it's like one of the. How I think, many people contribute to your writing? Geez, uh, writing I do alone. Yeah, writing is just me. But I mean, I have a great team that surrounds me. You know, I have like uh, a great business team, and it grows every day. And uh, and uh, I think you're only as good as your team. And I think. One of the reasons I, I've come this far is because I've been surrounded by just people who've helped me make the right decisions and who've helped me execute mm -hmm. in the right way. So you recently went to France. Yeah. And you're about to do four months of shows. Back three to months. Back, yeah. Three months. Yeah. Why on earth did you pick France? <laughs> it almost sounds like an insult. Where's the? <laughs> where's the? Why not? You, why not? Just, no, but to put a little bit of context, you had gone to the U.S. You've had successful shows in the U.S. Right. People would have imagined that once you make it big in Quebec and Canada, okay, let's move on to the U.S. Right. And then you go to France. Right. And people here already say that you can't speak French properly. So what are they going to say about you? Who said I can't speak French properly? <laughs> My French isn't bad, right? I mean, no. Sure. <laughs> Not mad. How's my French? It's not bad. No, it's good, but you did get some critics saying... <laughs> now I'm paranoid. I thought my French was pretty good. I mean, it's not as bad as the readers of Journal de Montréal, that's for sure. <laughs> Have you read some of the comments under the people, under the articles of Journal de Montréal? There's spelling mistakes everywhere. <clears throat> She's taping this. I'm sending this shit. It's a Quebec call tomorrow morning. But, uh, no, I think my French is pretty decent. Okay, your French is great. <laughs> Why did you choose to go to France? Um, was there an opportunity there? Or you thought, you know what, I want to tackle this new market? Because nobody knew who you were there. I wanted to improve my French. Okay. I know. <laughs> so I thought to myself, you know, people have been saying, I've heard that my French is horrible. I need to go to France and go to the source of this language and get better at it. So that's why I went to France. 
No, I thought to myself, listen, I did something pretty special here, and I think I did something very different in this province, you know? And I came from a place, and I occupied a space culturally that not a lot of people dared to occupy, you know, coming from a federalist perspective, mm -hmm. you know, embracing multiculturalism, promoting multiculturalism. I mean, it's not something you see uh, in Quebec culture, like, you know, put out, you know, proudly, mm -hmm. and, you know, people, like, raising the Canadian flag, going, je suis Canadien, like, you know, they're like, ah, il parle pas français bien, lui. Il voulait dire québécois, no? Like, so, so, so it's like you don't see that. So I occupied this space, and, and since I left, nobody else had occupied it. But I felt, I felt there was this same sort of gap in France. And I was passionate about that. There were a lot of things that were, be, that were happening in France politically, socially, a lot of racial tensions, and no one was really addressing that head on. And I thought to myself, this is fun. This might be a good thing to do comedically, and I was passionate about it, and I said, let me go there and really study the French, go there for a year, year and a half, and really do this anthropological study and really be honest and precise, because you didn't want it to be a caricature if it's going to be true and if it's going to connect with a French audience. And I think having studied the French properly and going there and, and doing a show and building a show that's sur mesure pour, uh, sur mesure pour les Français, yeah. I think that was, uh, that was one of those things that motivated me. You know, and there was, uh, there was so much going on. And I think my opening line over there set the tone, you know? I mean, my first line when I walk up on stage is like, je suis content d'être en France, vous êtes mon pays arabe préféré. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, just that joke, you know? It's like, it's so short, precise, but there's so much in that statement and in that joke. It's so, it's so loaded with everything that they were going through. And people say, okay, this is the beginning. I can't wait to see how this show builds. And then it just got worse. So I love that. Like, <laughs> I love that cultural roast of France. You know, I did that in Quebec, and I pushed even further in France. And I think for me as a writer, uh, it was motivating because I knew uh, with the French, like, I realized very quickly the French are way less sensitive than the Quebecois. Like, Quebecois people are very, very sensitive, like, to the point where I'm, I started writing my second show for Quebec, and I'm like, they're going to be riots. Like, <laughs> because I'm now writing with a sensibility that's French, and in France they have they're so um, they they almost they're, they're not sensitive at all. They're almost masochistic. They want you to roast them. Like they they want the abuse up on stage, and so you're almost writing now for your for your next stuff, and you're pushing so far, and you're like this. I don't know if this will work in Quebec, but this is the appetite I have now. I want to write in a way I'm pushing this far, and I'm. I'm going this far and I'm pushing buttons and I'm addressing these things but in an that, honest way. Did that come to you as a surprise? Because they're not known for being people that are, you know, necessarily laugh at themselves. This is something that they have in a show like this. They haven't really had anything like this. I think they realize that they can laugh at themselves as a society. They don't like laughing at themselves individually. Okay. Meaning, like, if you laugh at the French, they're okay with that because there's, like, they're backed up by the rest of the group. <laughs> but if you laugh at Gérard Depardieu and he's there, He'll lose his fucking mind. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> he'll just go crazy, yeah. Did this happen? This hasn't happened yet. You, know? <laughs> you should invite him to your Well, show. he's in Russia, so that kind of works out pretty well anyways. Um, and you think that as an outsider, did they welcome you even more? They liked the point of view. I think if I was born and raised in France, they'd be like, they'd probably say, who the fuck does he think he is? Yes. Yeah. But because I'm an outsider... They welcome it. And for me, it's easier as an outsider because I, I could always take a flight back home really quickly <laughs> and escape and be like, 
Air Canada, bitch. And then, <laughs> and, then I'm, and then I'm gone. By the way, if you fly to France, Air Canada is the way to go. Don't take Air France. Because yeah, the flight attendants treat you like ex-boyfriend. Tiens, don't déjeuner. If we talk about a pivotal moment, you talked about it, obviously, delirious, but was there a moment where you thought, okay, regardless of the money, it, it stopped being a hobby and it really became, okay, I'm actually going to make this my career? I would say 2004, when I did my first Just for Laughs. Yeah. I remember, you know, we're very fortunate. We have, like, the biggest festival in the world over here in uh, Montreal. And I remember getting my first Just for Laughs festival and getting my foot in the door and going, okay, now that I got my foot in the door, I got to make sure that I make something of it, you know? So that first festival, man, I worked my ass off to make sure I did every single interview I could. I actually walked into the PR department. Lisa, who's like my publicist now, was the head publicist for, uh, for Just for Laughs. And Lisa will attest to this. I walked into the office going, hi, my name's Sugar Sammy. Uh, I'm a new comedian. This is my first Just for Laughs festival. I just want to let you guys know, any interview you have, I'll do it. Anybody cancels, I'm there. And they had a board, and I like told everybody, here's my phone number. And I wrote it on the board. I said, any comedian cancels last minute, call me. And I did tons of interviews that first festival, and I, I really made the most of it. I said to myself, I got this festival now, and okay, now how can I make the most of this festival and make a name for myself? Because this is my shot. You gotta recognize your windows, right? In your life, in your career, you'll get these windows from time to time, right? You don't get one, you don't get to, you get several, you'll get them, but they don't come along every day. But when you do get them, you've got to make a conscious effort to recognize that you have this opportunity, you have this window, and make the most of it. Because something great can come out of that if you do, and if you plan for it, and if you execute. And that's happened to me, and I've been conscious of that. That's, I think, one of those things that probably I, I would give, uh, I would say is, is the reason that <clears throat> I've come so far as I've recognized those opportunities. And you recognize them and you take them and you make the most of them, it'll take you to that next step. And I think, I mean, uh, Lisa, I'll tell you, I worked my butt off that, uh, that festival. Nobody worked harder and she brought cupcakes. I brought cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> I always say if you want to impress upon somebody something, bring them food. <laughs> no, I, brought <laughs> I brought cupcakes every day. I was like, guys, cupcakes? <laughs> Trade you for interviews. <laughs> And so I, I would walk in every day, and I, I, not only did I leave my number on the board, and I wasn't just there that first day, I'd always pop by the PR office every day and go, guys, anything come up? Anybody cancel? I'm here. <laughs> and I showed up at the press conference, but I didn't do it in an annoying, an annoying way, right? <laughs> She's on your payroll. <laughs> she has no choice but to exactly. say that. No. And we've been working together ever since, 2004, yeah. yeah. So we've been working together ever since, and... Uh, we were both what? Twelve. Twelve, yeah. We age very well. Asians and Indians, that's a... <laughs> talk to me about the, the uh, comedy community in Montreal. A, a lot of artists talk about how the comedy club played a really big role in, in developing their career and honing their craft. Is that something that you felt in Montreal was, was there for you? It was very essential to my, uh, to my growth as a comedian, and it still is. Every time I'll write new material, I have to go to these open mics and test it out. You have to have that test audience. That's, that's one of the benefits we have as comedians that a lot of filmmakers and writers don't have, is you get to test 
your material on an audience before you take it to a bigger audience. And uh, I never miss an opportunity to, to do that. So every time I write something, I have to take it up on stage so I can start developing it right away. Because if I let it sit too long, then I lose the initial idea and the initial feel of it. You know? and, um, and so that's a very important part of our process. So that's kind of a, a laboratoire d'écriture, you know, for us. As we go up there, we'll take our papers and, and we'll try new stuff out. So for me, I think, uh, and I do a lot of that here in Montreal too. I do these secret shows. So whenever I, I feel like I've developed enough material to really test it as a show, I'll throw these secret shows for my fans where it's like a test audience of like anywhere between 40 and 100 people. And it's got to be one of the, my favorite things to do is those secret shows because it's kind of like... I could push as far as I want. The audience knows we all trust each other. We're going to go far with this together, and we'll see where where it leads. And then, and then, uh, and then you get to meet. I get to meet every single one of them after the show as well. And you know, you get direct feedback. You kind of know right away whether something works or not. Comedy is not something that, like, an art form that that you know people can lie about. Like, you could tell a real laugh from a fake laugh very quickly, right? So you know if your material is actually good or not. Like you could have the best comedian in the world in front of you, but if they have written a bad joke, you'll, they'll feel it. You know? They'll feel it. And you could have someone that's really unknown that's written amazing material. The crowd will be able to pick that up right away. You know? So I think comedy is one of those things that's, that doesn't lie. I think that's one thing comedians and boxers have in, in common, too. It's like with comedians, you can tell very quickly when someone's done their work, and you can tell very quickly when a boxer is trained or not. Like within the first round, you could usually tell that motherfucker is going to go down in like five seconds, right? Like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, uh, it doesn't lie, right? Just like uh, anybody could, everybody could say, hey, I work out in the gym. You know, usually the body won't lie. You're like, nah, <laughs> you're talking about working out, but you ain't working out. Like. Um, so as an artist, you do have that opportunity to hold up a mirror to society and kind of call them out on the things that you feel need to be discussed that maybe aren't so public at that point in time. And your personal style is very much observational comedy. You look at what's going on, you kind of make comments about things that everybody knows but just haven't maybe articulated before and they don't realize it. Um, you talk a lot about ethnic stereotypes. George Carlin, who's you know one of the kings of, of stand-up comedy, said a comedian's duty is to find where the line is and cross it deliberately. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something that you definitely adhere to. You do that in your shows. But does it feel like a duty to you? Do you feel like you, you have to, with the funny, you also have to pass on a message of what you may or may not be in agreement with? Well, I never consciously go, okay, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta have a message in my comedy. I never say, today, I gotta make sure that there's a message. You know, like it's not romper room. Like for me, I, I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like it's, it's got to be funny first. Like an audience comes to watch your show, they want to laugh, right? But the best comedy is a comedy that people can identify with, right? So if they leave with a message, Tom Yu, but if they, you know, if they don't, at least if they had a great time, that'll come through. For me, when I did this show in Quebec, it was never about having a message. The message was the fact that I was just being myself. You know, just being myself in this province on stage, coming from a multicultural background, saying how it's, it's okay to, to love Quebec and Canada at the same time, it's okay to speak English and French. I think that itself was the message, but I wasn't consciously doing it. I was just being me, you know? And I think sometimes that's what it is. People say a lot of times that, you know, artists influence their society. I don't think so. I think most of the time artists are a reflection of society. So 
I think I was just doing something that already existed. I, I was just one of the first ones to do it up on stage, you know, but it was already around us. When I told people, listen, I, I did the show, people were like, well, this is how I live anyway. I forgot that it was bilingual because I speak English and French very fluently and very fluidly in my day uh, all the time in this city. And I have friends from everywhere and I communicate with people from everywhere. If you're working anywhere in this world and you're doing business with anyone, you're talking to a lot of people from a lot of different countries today. You know, because of the internet, because of uh, all these multinationals and these international companies that you're dealing with. So you're dealing with people from all over the world and if you're closed in on yourself, I mean, I, think that, I don't think that's gonna work. You know, one of those things that helps people do business across uh, different countries is, you know, building a bridge to try to figure out a middle ground before you, you start doing business with someone. And people like doing business with people they're comfortable with, you know, much more than people who they feel like, you know, are judging them from afar. Mm. So. You're talking about, you know, being an artist and how comedy is your art form. You've also done some TV. You did uh, some TV in Quebec, and now you're even a judge in France on La France a un talent incroyable. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the joke, right? La France a un talent. Uh, is, is that something that you feel you can play with your, your creativity there, or is that just an opportunity that came up? Uh, no, it was fun. I mean, I was kind of, you know, I was uh, the bad guy. I was the, the Simon Cowell of France, mm -hmm. you know, season one. So that was fun. It was fun to be able to, you know, and I have these skills where I improvise on stage, and it was perfect for me to, to improvise and, and be... Uh, it's great visibility for you. It's great visibility, too. It's the second most watched show in France, and it was, you know, my chance to be irreverent. Uh, as well, you know, because I, I, I did everything to, I, you know, it was cool. I was not only roasting the candidates, I was roasting the other judges, the host, the, the network, like, you know, and they still kept me on, you know. So, <laughs> so it was great. It was fun to, to be able to do something different. And, you know, one of the good, great comments that I got was like, wow, it felt like, you know, it felt like no other judge that we'd seen in, in any of uh, the other God Talents around the world. So that was fun to be able to be myself and be able to kind of make fun of where I was and see the show for what it was from the outside and, and roast it a little bit. So Are you going to cool. do it again? I'm going to do it again if they give me the opportunity. It was so much fun the first time. So I still got to do the semifinals and the finals. And it was cool to also discover new talent. That was fun to be able to discover new talent and to actually give them feedback and stand-ups who showed up you know, and be able to tell them exactly, you know, what they were doing right and what they got to do. And also seeing the genesis of someone who's going to be brilliant in a couple of years. Like, a lot of these people are new, but you could tell that they're going to be great. And you're like, oh, it was fun to see that as a comedian, to see other comedians and be able to tell them to keep going because you could see a genesis of, like, someone who was going to become great one day. That's probably one of the most fun parts as well. I want to talk about the balance between improv and rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, in preparing for this, I watched about 100 hours of your interviews and all of that, and a lot of bits come back, mm -hmm. and they sound like everyone, you know, when they react to it, it sounds like the first time you've ever said this in your life, but when you start looking at it all together, there's a lot of bits that are really kind of rehearsed and prepared. Mm -hmm. But then in your shows, you have an audience you don't know anything mm -hmm. about, and you have no choice but to improvise. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain that balance? What's your... Well, you got to make it sound new every time. So whenever you have something that's written, you've got to make it feel new, mm -hmm. right? So you've got you've to make the audience feel like 
they're discovering it at the same time as you're discovering it or as, a, as you're saying it. And you've got to always find the newness in it. And I think for me, you know, a lot of times people tour their shows, they'll do it 400 times. And you'll see at, like by, th you know, number 300, it's so rehearsed that it almost feels like they're not present. And for me, I think adding that element of improv and going in and engaging the audience makes me excited about the show because I'm also like, I, I can't wait to see what, what new thing I'm going to find today, what new joke I'm going to create with this audience and what I'm going to discover. And so that keeps me excited about it because after 400 times, you can, it can become rehearsed. Sure. And for me, that's, I think, the exciting part is, is going in and figuring out something new and finding something new every night. Do you still have nerves? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when I'm out of my element, you know? I mean, I, this is definitely very new for me, you know? This is, I've never done this. You're, like, super nervous. Yeah, I'm not super nervous, but I'm, <laughs> it's kind of different, you know? I'm here, there are a couple beer boxes. I've never done this. Like, <laughs> I'm in a warehouse. No one knows where I am. <laughs> Some random cab truck drove me here. <laughs> <laughs> the driver said, bonne chance, as I left. And I'm like, <laughs> so, so, you know, the, when I'm outside of my comfort zone, it's, I always feel like that's fun for me to be, to be nervous mm -hmm. and to do something different because it makes me stronger. Like, I'm sure, like, the second or third time I'll do this, you know, uh, I'll keep getting better at this, but... But, you know, this is definitely new, you know? Having everybody stare at me and go. <laughs> like, it looks like everyone's looking at me like, what are the answers, Sugar Sam? <laughs> we need the answers. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's important to mention, you know, you have accomplished a lot. Your show at Olympia, which ended up lasting four years or four and a half years, that was supposed to be one show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was supposed to be one show. And people predicted it was going to be one show, that, yeah, <laughs> or two that the French and English were never going to be able to get together in, in one theater, and especially, and even the choice of theaters, they're like, ah, that ain't pire. Personne va là. C'est dans le village. Il n'y a pas de parking. And now every comedian in the province is, is going to the Olympia. It's like one of the best comedy rooms in the, in the world. And I mean, I think for me, that was... Uh, Something that I, I, I remember identifying very early on and saying, wow, this, I did a show there for the Haitian community uh, in 2009. It was a fundraiser. Um, and uh, I remember going up on stage and feeling the energy in that room and thinking to myself, wow, this theater is amazing. I can't believe no one's used it for comedy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I said, no, this is where I want to do it. You know? And that came from, that was like a gut feeling. And then, uh, you know, I think as long as the show's good, people come. And no, we were surprised. It was supposed to be one or two, and it ended up being like four and a half years. It, uh, box office gross was 17.4 million. Right. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, when you pay taxes, it's like 150,000. <laughs> but that's why I pay my taxes in Quebec and not in France. France is like way fucking crazy. I was telling someone the other day, I was like, they're like, pourquoi tu payes tes taxes au Québec, pas en France? I go, because taxes are shit in France. I was like, tu sais que ça va mal en France quand ton paradis fiscal, c'est le Québec. Um, 
you know, you said that you had a lot of jokes in your arsenal. You're kind of confident that if something doesn't pick up with the crowd, you can throw something else at them. Have you ever been in a situation where you just could not connect with the crowd? Um, it hasn't happened in a while. You know, I always feel like I've, I, it has happened. Uh, I mean, the last time I think it happened was 2008 at the Halifax Comedy Festival. And I'm glad that's where it happened. Sorry? Are you from Halifax? You're from Halifax? My condolences. And uh, well, welcome to civilization. I'm getting that. So why did you leave Halifax? I went to university. You went to, you went to university in Quebec? Yeah. OK, where'd you go? Bishops, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it must have been going really bad in Halifax. <laughs> you know where it's good, bishops. Um, so, uh, so no, I was at the Halifax Comedy Fest, and I, I had um, the festival told me they said, okay, we, we're, it's the it's the CBC that's that sponsors it, so all shows go on CBC, and they're like, we want you to do three sets, okay, but all three have to be different. So I'm like, okay, perfect, no problem. So the first one I came in, killed, I was super prepared. Second one, super prepared, killed again. And that's when I got overconfident. Okay. I'm like, I killed, two great ones. And then the big gala, the third set, was on the last night. And I got so cocky, I thought to myself, I killed these other two sets. This is gonna be a breeze, I'll just go up and improvise. Halifax so easy. <laughs> Fuck man, what a mistake. I went up, I tried to wing it, and just <laughs> died up on stage, it was the worst death ever. I opened with something like, hey, great to be here in Halifax, you know, like all arrogant, Halifax, pretty people, not as pretty as everywhere else in the world, but fucking nothing. <laughs> and then it just kind of went down to him. And I got off stage, and I remember, you know, usually you get off stage, all the other comedians backstage on the gala, the host, the producers tell you, great set, man, great set all week, that's what it was, fucking killed. That was great. That was so good. I got off stage. Everyone was looking at the floor. <laughs> you know that look where you feel like, and that's when you feel alone as a comedian. You know, like you feel like a hockey goalie that just let in 10 goals, right? Like everybody just looks at the floor because they don't want to say good set because they know you'll know they're lying and they can't say it was shit. So everybody just looks at the floor. It's like, and I remember one girl, this one comedian, Erica Sigurdsson, who was the only one who was honest, because she also died that night. She goes, we learned a big lesson today. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we did, Erica. I got so drunk that night. I'd like, that's one of those nights where I was like, that's back when I used to drink a lot. I, <laughs> I got so drunk, I just, uh, I, was, I felt so shitty. I remember, and I was like, I'm never letting that happen again. Once you feel that, you're like, I know how that feels. And you need that from time to time. Like, I'm never letting that happen again. That was the worst feeling. That whole week, I was in bed. I couldn't get up. I couldn't eat. It felt like a breakup. Yeah, you know, like, you can't eat. You can't move. People try to call you. You're like, nah, man. <laughs> I need to be alone. And then this friend of mine in, in Ottawa, he owns this club called Absolute Comedy Club. His name is Jason Lawrence. So he calls me, because the only thing that'll get you over a bad gig is a good gig, right? So he calls me, he's like, hey buddy, I got a gig for you. Uh, do you want to do it? I was like, uh, what is it? He's like, look, I want to warn you, no one's done well at this gig. I book it every year. We want you to headline it, but everybody dies a horrible death. 
And I'm like, oh, fuck. So, so I was like, what is it? He's like, Metcalf, Ontario. It's a festival of mushroom farmers. <laughs> so, and it was in a barn. So I was like, fuck it, I'm in. <laughs> like, uh, maybe I'll get over this. I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to be that first guy who's going to kill that show. And so I'm at this barn. All these mushroom farmers are there. <laughs> so only ethnic person at a mushroom farmer's festival. For sure. Three opening acts go on. They all died. No one's listening. I was like, oh, fuck. So I got to go on. They all did 10 minutes, which was great, because you're only up there for 10. I had to do an hour. So I had to do an hour. I get up there. I'm like, hey, my name's Sugar Sammy. Someone throws a mushroom at my head. <laughs> That's not funny. Fuck you guys. <laughs> Someone throws a mushroom at my head and goes, I hate fucking packies. Yeah, and, and then it got quiet like this. Everybody went, <gasps> and I was like, fuck, I could either get angry or I could turn this into something. I was like, well, I'm Indian. I eat fucking packies too. <laughs> Why don't we start a Facebook group together and go after these motherfuckers? And the whole crowd, I got them at that point, and then I just roasted that guy who threw the mushroom at me. <laughs> and then I had them for the hour, and it was the only thing that got me over that gig. So I'll never forget that. <laughs> I needed one racist guy, you know, and it uh, it uh, it definitely uh, it definitely helped me. Uh, continue because I was ready to quit comedy that week. I was like, I just I should do an office job. What am I doing? I just go do some data entry, pick up my check, and go the fuck home. Why do I do this? I don't need to do this. I'm not good at this. I'm not meant for this. And then I went up and did that. And then I was like, you just got to come in prepared. It was a, such a big lesson. Erica was right. That was such a big lesson. That we both learned. So you got to be prepared and over prepared, and you got to make it look easy. You know, that's the key. So. What's your ultimate goal, your end game? You talk about doing a world tour. You'd like to do you know, lots of things. Tell us kind of what's next up for you and what, where you'd like to be down the road. Emperor of Earth, not kidding. Uh, no, I, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, I want to just keep growing you know, as an artist and as, uh, as, uh, as a business. You know? I just want to keep getting better every day and grow my audience every day and be able to do this for the rest of my life. I mean, that's all I, wa I wanted to do. And I have such a passion for it. You know, I wake up thinking about this job every day, and you know, I go to sleep thinking about this job every day, and I love it. You know, I, I breathe it. I'm always writing material. I'm always thinking of the next thing I'm going to do. And you know, I don't think there's anything else that I would be able to do uh, professionally, but, uh, <laughs> but, but that was not <laughs> the street at all. <laughs> Like, you flash a light, we forgot about it, but then you made a whole thing about flashing a light. <laughs> I am going to do photos later. <laughs> we could be in the photos together. <laughs> and uh, so, I, I, you know, I've always wanted to do this, and it's, it's, it's definitely a, a passion. You know, I'm in love with this job. And, and uh, I want to keep doing it. And I, and I also want to be able, involved in every aspect. And I just want to keep growing and, and make sure as many people uh, as possible are able to, to like what I do on stage, you know? And I feel like, you know, when I saw Eddie Murphy delirious and what I felt watching him, you know, I feel like if someone could feel that while watching my stand-up, you know, that'd be very special to me. And what's the market that you want to hit after France? Um, I mean, I'm... 
I'm open to, to everyone. As long as people want comedy, I'd love to be there. You know, For me, it's all about um, being able to connect with as many people as possible. So you know, I'm in, interested in the States. I'm interested in the UK. I'm interested in India. You know, I think there's a big market there right now, and it's growing. You know, I think Asia is becoming a powerhouse worldwide, so that's for sure uh, on my radar. But as many places as possible, I've already done 31 countries. I, I want to keep doing it. I want to keep going to countries where maybe I wasn't expected to go as well. You know, I've always had a um, this vision of one day doing South America for some reason. You know, it's the only continent I haven't touched, and it's like I feel like it's uncharted territory for a lot of North American comics. So. I think that would be, that would definitely be interesting. So we only have two minutes left before we take a break so the audience can ask their questions. Sure. Uh, your thing is to observe people and kind of pick up on little, you know, idiosyncrasies and things like that and kind of call them out on it. Right. What do you want me to do? I want you to do that right now. You want me to call people out on yep. things? How do you do that? I want you to like... Well, I did call her out on her photo okay. thing. Okay, other than her. <laughs> other than her, I mean... Yeah, that was easy, but I mean, it was kind of like, <laughs> I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I mean, I don't, no, like, no one's been uh, misbehaving, really. So what do you want me to, that's kind of weird that you guys. Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, right, doesn't feel good that's now, so huh? Good. <laughs> huh? And all these people, now they turned it around on you. <laughs> Why don't we all call you out <laughs> on your bed? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> No, I mean... I, I would be honored. <laughs> it should be, I'd be honored if you roasted <laughs> me right now. No, I feel like this is a very well-behaved, you know, multicultural, multilingual crowd. I feel safe. I didn't, I wasn't sure in the beginning. I was dropped off in front of a warehouse. It felt like, you know, one of the scenes in Pulp Fiction. I felt like there was going to be a gimp coming out of a box. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, there's, uh, <laughs> I got ethnic backup everywhere. <laughs> I see the exit sign and I feel like... <laughs> Uh, All right, well, look, when they ask their questions, maybe. Yeah, when they ask their you. questions, maybe I can, I can ask them questions about themselves, but totally. I, think, I think that'd be awkward. And then, then we go to break and they'll all look at me like, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, but is, it, is this interesting to you guys? <laughs> yeah? Okay. All right. You never know. Sometimes I'm like, am I boring this shit out of me? Thank you very much for taking the time Thank to come chat with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for another alcove, your favorite Nomad microconference. Join us next time for another intimate alcove talk in person or right here. For more information, follow us on alcovemoments.com. Merci d'avoir été des nôtres dans cette microconférence Nomad Alcove. Joignez-vous à nous pour la prochaine conférence. Visitez alcovemoments.com pour tous les détails.